Welcome to the first episode of uh, a new podcast called Leading Through the Lens of Cultural Proficiency. I'm lucky enough to be the, the co-host of this podcast. My name is Jamie Wellborn, and I'm joined by the authors of um, our book, Leading Through the Lens of Culture Proficiency. Today's episode is going to focus on our journeys to culture proficiency. You'll hear about our stories, whether you're in the car listening to the podcast or you've scanned the QR code in the book, we want you to think about your own story and how important it is to know that story as you continue to lead schools and school organizations for opening doors for all students. I'd like to begin with my own story, um, an introduction to culture proficiency. In 2015, I was uh, earning my PhD at St. Louis University and, and planned to study uh, the principal's role in implementation of, of RTI, or Response to Intervention Services. Um, a very wise advisor uh, actually stopped me after 90 pages of a proposal and said, I, I, I'm not going to let you do this study. Well, at that time, it was hard to, uh, to know why I, I couldn't uh, investigate this, um, but little did I know she was giving me uh, the very best gift of my life, um, and that is the cultural proficiency framework uh, and the ability to do work in that arena. So uh, just a little bit about my story. Uh, I left the classroom that evening in tears. Uh, and, and called my very good friend, Terry Harris, who worked in the same district uh, as I did. And the very next day, he brought me a book, uh, Culturally Proficient Education, uh, the, the Asset-Based Response to Poverty. And so that evening, I read that book uh, in just one quick night. And I knew at that time, it was like my entire life began to to um, really come back to me through this reflection process. It was at that point that I realized that my advisor was really redirecting me to something greater uh, than response to intervention. Well, given that book, I changed my dissertation and, and began to investigate the degree to which principals in the Midwest use and value culturally proficient educational practices. After developing a survey, I reached out to uh, two of my co-authors, uh, Dr. Randy Lindsay and Dr. Keith Myatt, to see if they would validate my survey. Um, and, and following from that, the, uh, the opportunities to, to work with educators around the culture proficiency framework really grew from there. Uh, and so from there, uh, following my PhD, I was able to uh, begin working in school districts and, and consulting and helping educators along their journey of culture proficiency. And I found myself in Evanston School District. Um, if you uh, have purchased our book, you know that that book is grounded in a, a two-year study that really looked at the implementation and use of the tools of culture proficiency. Um, so as you continue to listen to our podcast or and or read the book, you'll find out about the ways in which administrators have been implementing that framework. Uh, just a couple of other things along my journey. I, I really had no idea about the ways in which it would change uh, not only my professional life and the way that I show up as an educator, um, both in the K-12 setting and now in the higher education arena, but I, it also really changed my personal life in the way that 
uh, I navigate this world and the interactions and relationships that I have each and every day. So at this time, I'd like to turn it over to one of my co-authors, uh, Tamika Casey, for her story. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Um, in many ways, it's funny how I stepped into the work of cultural proficiency, and it's not unlike Jamie's story, but um, starting out, I recall as a, as a child, not a child, but a teenager in high school, when all of my friends and people around me, I went to a school um, where I was part of a handful of African-American students at the school. And I remember vividly a lot of my classmates being called out to go to, to the career counseling center and they're being asked about college choices and um, signing up for the SATs and ACTs. And I noticed that I wasn't called out and I didn't understand why. I, and I would ask them, well, why are you, where are you going? And um, what are you doing in the office? And when they told me what they were doing and I noticed that I wasn't called out to go and do that. And so that was something that stuck with me and it really resonated with me as I grew up and went into adulthood and went into the field of education. And once I started out in my journey in education, I knew that I was called to make sure that those same things didn't happen to other children. And I wanted to be an advocate and I wanted to be a voice for those who didn't have a voice. I wanted to be sure that that students of all races and all ethnicities had access and opportunities, um, no matter who they were or no matter where they came from. And so that was a passion of mine. And I didn't really have a title or a name for what that might be. Um, I just knew that it was something that I wanted to stand for. And to fast forward some, I was introduced to an opportunity as an educator to help and train and do some diversity work within my district that I worked for, that I work for currently. And so with that, we had to do a lot of research and studying. And in my hands landed a book titled Cultural Proficiency, the Manual for School Leaders. And so I had an opportunity like Jamie with a book uh, to just soak in like a sponge and all this information, and it just drew me to the work. And it was something that just really aligned with my life and my life story. And I took that information and we created presentations and we, and we worked with our educators in our school district. And the opportunity came for me to go to a training in which the authors were going to facilitate. And I had the awesome pleasure of meeting two very amazing people, Drs. Dolores and Dr. Randall Lindsay. And when I met them, I had met my celebrities. You know, most people want to acknowledge star status like Beyonce and other celebrities, but these were my celebrities. And I commenced to pulling out every book that I had purchased on cultural proficiency and getting their autographs. And from that moment, they have not been able to get rid of me. It's like <laughs> I'm following them around and I'm learning and gleaning and soaking in this work. And I've been able to, again, just that work has been able to transcend throughout our school district 
And um, so that's really how I got connected to this work. It's been very important, not only just for me as an educator, but for me also as an individual. I utilize the tools of cultural proficiency, not only in my career, but also in my personal journey as well. And it has, I have learned that I may not have it all together. <laughs> I may not know it all, but my heart and the, the view and the lens in which I see things now have completely changed due to the cultural proficiency framework. And so I'm a strong proponent of it. And with that, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to my good friend, Keith. Tell us about your journey. Well, uh, it started um, many decades ago uh, when I was getting my master's degree at Cal State LA. Uh, which is where Ray Terrell and Randy Lindsay uh, were um, professors there. And so that was my first introduction to, um, this was prior to when the cultural proficiency publications had actually occurred, but they still stood up for uh, anti-racism. They still sort of stood tall for social justice. They had at the cornerstone of all their courses, um, the examination of, of what racism has done to, um, uh, to America and also to us, and also specifically to our, to our education systems. And this was, to me was quite a shock because uh, I had grown up in a town, uh, literally there were no uh, African-Americans in my uh, high school. And so um, the, the only time that I had ever seen uh, a relationship between a black and a white per, um, person was on I Spy with uh, Robert Culp and um, Bill Cosby. So here was a real relationship of two men uh, who obviously and desperately uh, cared for each other. And also, were, and from that kind of came the nexus of, of of all, a compassion for all of us and for a way for us to go through and begin to examine our own uh, responses to difference. Uh, 20 years later, I, was, I worked with Dolores Lindsay and the California School Leadership Academy where cultural proficiency now was a cornerstone of one of the things that were taught within that program. And that was a statewide program in California. And that really was the nexus of the um, bringing cultural proficiency to every school district in the state of California. And that ball is still rolling. Um, in that time, I've also worked with the, uh, at the Museum of Tolerance. Um, this is our third book together. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, been amazing. it's been an amazing journey. And one of the things that I was very, very happy with when I worked at the County Office of Education and Leadership Services was being able to focus the work of the county on, on the uh, traditionally black districts that were underperforming or underserved. Uh, Compton and um, those kind of places. And um, we really had, uh, we've done some tremendous work around leadership um, working in those districts. And so um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful place. And it really, as you said uh, to make it really has given me direction and an understanding about what we need to be working on in education. So let me head up to the, uh, to my good friend and colleague and mentor for many, many decades. Uh, Randy Lindsay. Thank you, Keith and Tamika and Jamie. It's such an honor to be with you on this project. Um, I hesitate on the word project because we're going to use the word journey, which is the metaphor we use in, in this book. Uh, but it has been a journey in, in my life and having my three colleagues here uh, at this stage in my career is uh, quite a, an honor. 
Um, I started as a classroom teacher in the middle 1960s in my in a district near Chicago, Illinois, my home state, and um, really was quite oblivious to many of the issues that we now take for granted that we take a look at. It was when I stepped into a quasi-administrative role that I started seeing the macro view of the, of the work. I was invited by John Elliott to work with him to desegregate the school district that we had been teachers in. And uh, I can't understate, I can't overstate how naive I was. I had no idea what the systemic issues were and how they negatively affected every student, every adult in the, in the district, some in ways that were enhanced and some in ways in which you were penalized. And that year, just taking a look at that and started to gather data, I started to understand a concept that was very dominant in the, in the vernacular at the time, and um, excuse me, not the vernacular, very dominant in the newspapers at the time, and that was the concept of racism. And now as a white male co-leading a school desegregation effort where I was seeing things up front and very personal and the kinds of interactions, who was being uh, retained in, in eighth grade, who was being retained in kindergarten, who was being suspended, expelled, who was in gifted and talented, who was in special education. Those things all became just really the forefront of, of my life and my work. Um, after a year at that district, I had the opportunity of joining Ray Terrell in suburban Cincinnati and stayed two years there doing the very same work. And again, the work of, of anti-racism was emerging and it was challenging to get people to engage in the conversation about anti-racism. When you had volunteer groups, then the same people showed up all the time and it would be like 10 to 20% of the student or the, of the adult population. We wanted something that was actually going to engage people in a very constructive way, but not compromise dealing with racism in a very direct way. And uh, our journeys led Ray and me to Cal State Los Angeles. He, went, he became the a faculty member there and later the Dean of the School of Education. I followed with him after a short detour through Georgia State University where I earned my PhD. And let me just pause there for a minute because my studies at, at Georgia State Having three years working in school desegregation efforts, um, I was developing this, this understanding of racism and I was understanding the negative effects of it, but I wasn't understanding how people benefited from that. And so my two years as a full-time uh, doctoral student at Georgia State University, I took a deep dive into how do white people benefit from racism and later how women, uh, excuse me, how men benefit from sexism. And we have just been unpacking those over the years. Took that knowledge with me, then I joined Raymond at, at Cal State Los Angeles where he landed a desegregation grant. We were working with school districts throughout Arizona, California, and Nevada. And we kept, we kept working with this, you know, doing different kinds of models, different kinds of approaches with mixed results. We met a young woman who was doing a similar program at Cal State Northridge, Kikanza Nuri Robbins. We enticed her to come to the university with us at Cal State Los Angeles. And we continued doing this kind of conversation. Kikanza came to the office one day and she said that she'd been to a meeting in Sacramento. She heard this term cultural competence. And I'd never heard of it and Raymond hadn't either. And so she called back to Sacramento and they said, well, there's this, this monograph out of Georgetown University. So she got a copy of it and the author is Terry Cross. And Terry Cross is a member of the Seneca Nation. He is a social worker by training, lives uh, now in Portland, Oregon. And in his work over about 20 years with, with his colleagues, was trying to do the very same thing that we were trying to do, and he was being very successful at it. So he developed this approach called cultural competence and cultural proficiency. We called him and we said, you know, we would like to be able to translate this work into education. 
He said, you have free permission, take the work, it's yours, do it. And so over a couple of years, Ray and Kakanza and I kept working on this, this, this monograph. I do want to start as a monograph and then into a, a book. We were rejected by over 20 publishers. And the one thing they did not want to include was a privilege entitlement chapter. And we said, well, that's the core of the book. That's what makes it unique from other approaches. And then Corwin Press picked the book up and you know, the rest is history. So in this podcast, what, what, we are, what we're doing to share with you is this journey and where we are and how we've benefited from colleagues as we've continued to do the work, uh, much like you're doing in your school districts. So we're looking forward to this journey with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Leading Through the Lens of Cultural Proficiency. We would like to extend a special thank you to our publisher, Corwin. For additional resources, visit the Center for Culturally Proficient Educational Practice at ccpep.org. And be sure to subscribe to Leading Through the Lens of Cultural Proficiency through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you at the next stop on the cultural proficiency journey.